D.E. Vicordicular, my name is James Nagel, welcome to The Irish Nation Lives. Following the surrender of the Provisional Government on the 29th of April 1916, British authorities struggled to find facilities to hold and try the prisoners that came under their control. Liam Tobin remembers that the men from the Forecourts garrison were marched to the Rotunda Hospital and put into a small field opposite the building. Here the men were ill-treated by the police guard placed over them, and one of them, Captain Lee Wilson, took especial pleasure in humiliating Tom Clark. Though he was only 58 years of age, Clark was frail from the 15 years he had spent in prison, much of it in solitary confinement, for his role in the Fenian Dynamite campaign. Joseph Sweeney, who had fought at the GPO, remembers Lee Wilson stripping Clark naked and forcing him to stand on the top steps of the Rotunda Hospital before his men and the nurses looking out from the windows. The rough treatment opened up an old wound, and Lee Wilson mocked him and his brother-in-law, Ned Daly, who had been treated likewise. Amongst the prisoners watching this was Michael Collins, and legend has it that he swore that he would have his revenge. This sentiment was echoed by Liam Tobin, who said in his Bureau of Military History statement that he looked at Lee Wilson, and, I registered a vow to myself that I would deal with him at some time in the future. Percival Lee Wilson was born in 1887 into a well-to-do Kensington family. His father was a stockbroker, and his father before him had been Lord Mayor of London. While he was educated at Oxford, he took the unusual step of joining the Royal Irish Constabulary in 1909, though his background and religion opened up to him the possibility of promotion to its highest ranks, closed off to the majority of its Irish members. Posted to Charleville in County Cork, he met Marie Monica Ryan, whom he married before enlisting with the Royal Irish Regiment on the outbreak of the First World War. Promoted to captain and serving as a musketry instructor in France, he was on leave or was recovering from wounds in Dublin when the 1916 Rising broke out. Some reports say that he had re-enlisted with the Royal Irish Constabulary by this time, but it is most likely that this didn't occur until 1917. After the war, he was promoted to the rank of district inspector and assigned to Gorey in Wexford, where he was greatly respected by the local community. On the morning of Thursday the 15th of June 1920, Lee Wilson strolled from his house to the local shop to pick up a copy of the Irish Times. Leafing idly through its pages as he walked back, he took no notice of the car parked on the side of the road with its bonnet raised and five men gathered around examining the engine. There are two separate lists given of who these men were. Paddy O'Daly says that Tom Keogh and Tom Cullen had been sent from Dublin to meet with men from Wexford who could help them to escape after, while others believe that Frank Thornton and the IRA Deputy Director of Intelligence himself, Liam Tobin, had travelled down. Regardless, this was a squad mission, and as Lee Wilson passed, the men drew their revolvers and fired. He was struck twice and fell to the ground, but managed to get up and started running. Another three shots were fired, at least one of which hit him, and he collapsed to the ground dying. In versions where he is placed at the scene, it is said that Liam Tobin fired the fatal shot. Joe Sweeney, by now a TD in Dolaren, was in the Wicklow Hotel in Dublin that evening when Michael Collins burst in and told him, We got the bugger, Joe. The killing of Lee Wilson is one of the many events that contributes to building the legend of Michael Collins. At the very hour of Ireland's defeat in 1916, he was already planning its ultimate victory, of which building an army that could strike back at its enemies was the most important part. 
for four years he planned and plotted until the time was right to take revenge on Lee Wilson. Weary, however, of the image this paints, of a bloodthirsty gunman driven by revenge, Paddy O'Daly stated, I believe he was shot because of the position he held at the time and for no other reason. I am satisfied from my long experience with the squad that no man was shot merely for revenge and that any execution sanctioned by Michael Collins was perfectly justified. O'Daly had himself been reprimanded by Collins when he heard a rumour that O'Daly was going to take revenge on an officer who had raided his house during 1916. Collins gave me a lecture on revenge and told me that the man who had revenge in his heart was not fit to be a volunteer. It would not be unlike Collins, however, to believe that the rules should apply to everyone but himself, and Lee Wilson's position could have had little to do with the reasons behind his killing. The day after his death, the Irish Times reported that Gorey had been the quietest town in Ireland, and before this, nothing else had occurred there. Usually, this is where the story would end. Little attention is generally paid to those who were left behind to grieve, but the story of Lee Wilson's widow guaranteed a unique position for both of them in the history of art. In 1921, while holidaying in Scotland, Marie attended an auction at which paintings from the collection of William Hamilton Nesbeth were being sold. Though not a collector of art, she was struck by one of the paintings, a copy of Caravaggio's The Taking of Christ, created by a noted imitator of his, Gerrit von Honthorst. It depicted Judas kissing Jesus Christ, identifying him to Roman soldiers who had come to arrest him, after which he was tried and crucified. She purchased the painting, and after returning home to Ireland with it, she began studying medicine in Trinity College, Dublin, graduating in 1928, after which she worked as a paediatrician at the Children's Hospital on Harcourt Street. A devout Roman Catholic, Marie attended Mass daily before work, and in the early 1930s, she donated the large painting she had brought from Scotland to the Jesuit community on Leeson Street, in gratitude for the support that they had shown to her after her husband's death. She never remarried, and worked until she was 83 years of age, dying the year after, in 1971. The Jesuits hung the painting that had been given to them in their dining hall, and there it stayed until 1990, when they invited Sergio Benedetti, the conservator of the National Gallery of Ireland, to carry out cleaning and restoration work on some of their art collection. As the copy was being cleaned at the National Gallery, Benedetti noted that it was of a very high quality, and he began to wonder if it might actually be the original. X-rays and three years of archival research were able to confirm that the Jesuits had in their possession a masterpiece that had been missing for over 200 years. In 1602, Caravaggio had been commissioned by the wealthy Mattei family to paint The Taking of Christ, but in 1793, an inventory of the family's artwork mistakenly recorded it as a copy. In 1802, it was sold as such to William Hamilton Nesbitt, a former British Member of Parliament who brought it back to Scotland, where it remained in the family's possession until 1921. Believed to have been lost, its discovery astounded the art world when it was unveiled in November of 1993. It has been granted on indefinite loan to the National Gallery of Ireland by the Jesuit community, who acknowledged the generosity of Dr. Marie Lee Wilson. Renaissance art was the last thing on the minds of those fighting the War of Independence in 1920, and many of them would not live to see Ireland develop artistic talents who would both laud and criticise their actions. 
July of 1920 will see Britain introduce the auxiliaries into Ireland and empower them to carry out reprisals against the Irish population, while the squad continues to gather information and prepare for their biggest operation yet, a massive attack on British intelligence in November on what will become known as Bloody Sunday. Ahorda, thank you for joining me on The Irish Nation Lives. Slong of all.